I must tell you about my waking dream, Paul said. Now there was fury in his voice. To be sure you accept what I say, I'll tell you first. I know you will bear a daughter, my sister, here on Arrakis. Jessica placed her hands against the tent floor, pressed back against the curving fabric wall to still a pang of fear. She knew her pregnancy could not show yet. Only her own Bene Gesserit training had allowed her to read the first faint signals of her body, to know of the embryo only a few weeks old. Only to serve, Jessica whispered, clinging to the Bene Gesserit motto. We exist only to serve. We'll find a home among the Fremen, Paul said. We your missionaria protectiva has brought us a bolt hole. They've prepared a way for us in the desert, Jessica told herself. But how can he know the missionaria protectiva? She found it increasingly difficult to subdue her terror at the overpowering strangeness in Paul. He studied the dark shadow of her, seeing her fear and every reaction with his new awareness as though she were outlined in blinding light. A beginning of compassion for her crept over him. The things that can happen here I cannot begin to tell you, he said. I cannot even begin to tell myself, although I've seen them. This sense of the future, I seem to have no control over it. The thing just happens. The immediate future, say, a year, I can see some of that. A road as broad as our central avenue on Caladan. Some places I don't see, shadowed places, as though it went behind a hill. And again he thought of the surface of a blowing kerchief. And there are branchings. He fell silent as memory of that seeing filled him. No prescient dream, no experience of his life, had quite prepared him for the totality with which the veils had been ripped away to reveal naked time. Recalling the experience, he recognized his own terrible purpose, the pressure of his life spreading outward like an expanding bubble, time retreating before it. Jessica found the tent's glow-tab control, activated it. Dim green light drove back the shadows, easing her fear. She looked at Paul's face, his eyes, the inward stare, and she knew where she had seen such a look before, pictured in records of disasters, on the faces of children who experienced starvation or terrible injury. The eyes were like pits, mouth a straight line, cheeks indrawn. It's the look of terrible awareness, she thought, of someone forced to the knowledge of his own mortality. He was indeed no longer a child. The underlying import of his words began to take over in her mind, pushing all else aside. Paul could see ahead, a way of escape for them. There's a way to evade the Harkonnens, she said. The Harkonnens, he sneered. Put those twisted humans out of your mind. He stared at his mother, studying the lines of her face in the light of the glow-tap. The lines betrayed her. She said, You shouldn't refer to people as humans without... Don't be so sure you know where to draw the line, he said. We carry our past with us, and mother mine, there's a thing you don't know, and should. We are Harkonnens. Her mind did a terrifying thing. It blanked out as though it needed to shut off all sensation. 
but Paul's voice went on at that implacable pace, dragging her with it. When next you find a mirror, study your face, study mine now. The traces are there if you don't blind yourself. Look at my hands, the set of my bones. If none of this convinces you, then take my word for it. I've walked the future, I've looked at a record, I've seen a place, I have all the data. We're Harkonnens. A renegade branch of the family, she said. That's it, isn't it? Some Harkonnen cousin who... You're the Baron's own daughter, he said, and watched the way she pressed her hands to her mouth. The Baron sampled many pleasures in his youth, and once permitted himself to be seduced. But it was for the genetic purposes of the Bene Gesserit, by one of you. The way he said you struck her like a slap, but it set her mind to working and she could not deny his words. So many blank ends of meaning in her past reached out now and linked. The daughter the Bene Gesserit wanted. It wasn't to end the old Atreides-Harkonnen feud, but to fix some genetic factor in their lines. What? She groped for an answer. As though he saw inside her mind, Paul said, They thought they were reaching for me, but I'm not what they expected, and I've arrived before my time, and they don't know it. Jessica pressed her hands to her mouth. Great mother! He's the Kwisatz Haderach. She felt exposed and naked before him, realizing then that he saw her with eyes from which little could be hidden, and that, she knew, was the basis of her fear. You're thinking I'm the Kwisatz Haderach, she said. Put that out of your mind. I'm something unexpected. I must get the word out to one of the schools, she thought. The mating index may show what has happened. They won't learn about me until it's too late, he said. She sought to divert him, lowered her hands and said, We'll find a place among the Fremen. The Fremen have a saying they credit to Shai Hulud, Old Father Eternity, he said. They say, be prepared to appreciate what you meet. And he thought, yes, mother mine, among the Fremen. You'll acquire the blue eyes and a callus beside your lovely nose from the filter tube to your still suit. And you'll bear my sister, St. Alia of the Knife. If you're not the Kwisatz Haderach, Jessica said, what? You couldn't possibly know, he said. You won't believe it until you see it. And he thought, I'm a seed. He suddenly saw how fertile was the ground into which he had fallen, and with this realization the terrible purpose filled him, creeping through the empty place within, threatening to choke him with grief. He had seen two main branchings along the way ahead. In one he confronted an evil old baron and said, Hello, grandfather. He thought of that path, and what lay along it sickened him. The other path held long patches of grey obscurity, except for peaks of violence. He had seen a warrior religion there, a fire spreading across the universe with the Atreides' green and black banner waving at the head of fanatic legions drunk on spice liquor. Gurney Halleck 
and a few others of his father's men, a pitiful few, were among them, all marked by the hawk symbol from the shrine of his father's skull. I can't go that way, he muttered. That's what the old witches of your schools really want. I don't understand you, Paul, his mother said. He remained silent, thinking like the seed he was thinking with the race consciousness he had first experienced as terrible purpose. He found that he no longer could hate the Bene Gesserit, or the Emperor, or even the Harkonnens. They were all caught up in the need of their race to renew its scattered inheritance, to cross and mingle and infuse their bloodlines in a great new pooling of genes, and the race knew only one sure way for this, the ancient way the tried and certain way that rolled over everything in its path. Jihad. Surely, I cannot choose that way, he thought. But he saw again in his mind's eye the shrine of his father's skull and the violence with the green and black banner waving in its midst. Jessica cleared her throat, worried by his silence. Then... The Fremen will give us sanctuary? He looked up, staring across the green-lighted tent at the inbred patrician lines of her face. Yes, he said. That's one of the ways. He nodded. Yes. They'll call me Muad'Dib, the one who points the way. Yes, that's what they'll call me. And he closed his eyes, thinking, Now, my father, I can mourn you. And he felt the tears coursing down his cheeks. Book Two Muad'Dib When my father, the Padishah Emperor, heard of Duke Leto's death and the manner of it, he went into such a rage as we had never before seen. He blamed my mother, and the compact forced on him to place a Bene Gesserit on the throne. He blamed the guild and the evil old baron. He blamed everyone in sight, not excepting even me, for he said I was a witch like all the others. And when I sought to comfort him, saying it was done according to an older law of self-preservation to which even the most ancient rulers gave allegiance, he sneered at me and asked if I thought him a weakling. I saw then that he had been aroused to this passion not by concern over the dead duke, but by what that death implied for all royalty. As I look back on it, I think there may have been some prescience in my father too, for it is certain that his line and Muad'Dib's shared common ancestry. In my father's house by the Princess Iralan. Now... Harkonnen shall kill Harkonnen, Paul whispered. He had awakened shortly before nightfall, sitting up in the sealed and darkened still tent. As he spoke, he heard the vague stirrings of his mother, where she slept against the tent's opposite wall. Paul glanced at the proximity detector on the floor, studying the dials illuminated in the blackness by phosphor tubes. It should be night soon, his mother said. Why don't you lift the tent shades? Paul realized then that her breathing had been different for some time, that she had lain silent in the darkness until certain he was awake. Lifting the shades wouldn't help, he said. There's been a storm. 
the tents covered by sand. I'll dig us out soon. No sign of Duncan yet? None. Paul rubbed absently at the ducal signet on his thumb, and a sudden rage against the very substance of this planet which had helped kill his father set him trembling. I heard the storm begin, Jessica said. The undemanding emptiness of her words helped restore some of his calm. His mind focused on the storm as he had seen it begin through the transparent end of their still tent, cold dribbles of sand crossing the basin, then runnels and tails furrowing the sky. He had looked up to a rock spire, seen it change shape under the blast, becoming a low, cheddar-coloured wedge. Sand funnelled into their basin had shadowed the sky with dull curry, then blotted out all light as the tent was covered. Tent bows had creaked once as they accepted the pressure, then silence, broken only by the dim bellows wheezing of their sand-snorkel pumping air from the surface. "'Try the receiver again,' Jessica said. "'No use,' he said. He found his still-suit's water-tube in its clip at his neck, drew a warm swallow into his mouth, and he thought that here he truly began an Arakeen existence, living on reclaimed moisture from his own breath and body. It was flat and tasteless water, but it soothed his throat. Jessica heard Paul drinking, felt the slickness of her own still suit clinging to her body, but she refused to accept her thirst. To accept it would require awakening fully into the terrible necessities of Arrakis, where they must guard even fractional traces of moisture, hoarding the few drops in the tent's catch pockets, begrudging a breath wasted on the open air. So much easier to drift back down into sleep. But there had been a dream in this day's sleep, and she shivered at the memory of it. She had held dreaming hands beneath sandflow where a name had been written, Duke Leto Atreides. The name had blurred with the sand, and she had moved to restore it, but the first letter filled before the last was begun. The sand would not stop. Her dream became wailing, louder and louder, that ridiculous wailing. Part of her mind had realized the sound was her own voice as a tiny child, little more than a baby. A woman not quite visible to memory was going away. My unknown mother, Jessica thought, the Bene Gesserit who bore me and gave me to the sisters because that's what she was commanded to do. Was she glad to rid herself of a Harkonnen child? The place to hit them is in the spice, Paul said. How can he think of attack at a time like this? She asked herself. An entire planet full of spice, she said. How can you hit them there? She heard him stirring, the sound of their pack being dragged across the tent floor. It was sea power and air power on Caladan, he said. Here it's desert power. The Fremen are the key. His voice came from the vicinity of the tense sphincter. A Bene Gesserit training sensed in his tone an unresolved bitterness toward her. All his life he has been trained to hate Harkonnens, she thought. Now he finds he is Harkonnen, because of me. How little he knows me. I was my duke's only woman. I accepted his life and his values, even to defying my Bene Gesserit orders. 
The tense glow tab came alight under Paul's hand, filled the domed area with green radiance. Paul crouched at the sphincter, his still-suit hood adjusted for the open desert, forehead capped, mouth filter in place, nose plugs adjusted. Only his dark eyes were visible, a narrow band of face that turned once toward her and away. Secure yourself for the open, he said, and his voice was blurred behind the filter. Jessica pulled the filter across her mouth, began adjusting her hood as she watched Paul break the tent seal. Sand rasped as he opened the sphincter, and a bird fizzle of grains ran into the tent before he could immobilize it with a static compaction tool. A hole grew in the sand wall as the tool realigned the grains. He slipped out, and her ears followed his progress to the surface. What will we find out there? she wondered. Harkonnen troops and the Sardaka? Those are dangers we can expect. But what of the dangers we don't know? She thought of the compaction tool and the other strange instruments in the pack. Each of these tools suddenly stood in her mind as a sign of mysterious dangers. She felt then a hot breeze from surface sand touch her cheeks where they were exposed above the filter. Pass up the pack. It was Paul's voice, low and guarded. She moved to obey, heard the water leaterjohns gurgle as she shoved the pack across the floor. She peered upward, saw Paul framed against stars. Here, he said, and reached down, pulled the pack to the surface. Now she saw only the circle of stars. They were like the luminous tips of weapons aimed down at her. A shower of meteors crossed her patch of night. The meteors seemed to her like a warning, like tiger stripes, like luminous grave slats clabbering her blood. And she felt the chill of the price on their heads. Hurry up, Paul said. I want to collapse the tent. A shower of sand from the surface brushed her left hand. How much sand will the hand hold? She asked herself. Shall I help you? Paul asked. No. She swallowed in a dry throat, slipped into the hole, felt static packed sand rasp under her hands. Paul reached down, took her arm. She stood beside him on a smooth patch of starlit desert, stared around. Sand almost brimmed their basin, leaving only a dim lip of surrounding rock. She probed the farther darkness with her trained senses. Noise of small animals. Birds. A fall of dislodged sand and faint creature sounds within it. Paul collapsing their tent, recovering it up the hole. Starlight displaced just enough of the night to charge each shadow with menace. She looked at patches of blackness. Black is blind remembering, she thought. You listen for pack sounds, for the cries of those who hunted your ancestors in a past so ancient only your most primitive selves remember. The ears see. The nostrils see. Presently Paul stood beside her, said, Duncan told me that if he was captured, he could hold out this long. We must leave here now. He shouldered the pack, crossed to the shallow lip of the basin, climbed to a ledge that looked down on open desert. Jessica followed automatically, noting how she now lived in her son's orbit. For now is my grief heavier than the sands of the seas, she thought. 
This world has emptied me of all but the oldest purpose. Tomorrow's life. I live now for my young duke and the daughter yet to be. She felt the sand drag her feet as she climbed to Paul's side. He looked north across a line of rocks, studying a distant escarpment. The faraway rock profile was like an ancient battleship of the seas outlined by stars. The long swish of it lifted on an invisible wave with syllables of boomerang antennae, funnels arching back, a pie-shaped upthrusting at the stern. An orange glare burst above the silhouette and a line of brilliant purple cut downward toward the glare. Another line of purple and another upthrusting orange glare. It was like an ancient naval battle, remembered shellfire, and the sight held them staring. Pillars of fire, Paul whispered. A ring of red eyes lifted over the distant rock, lines of purple laced the sky. Jet flares and laser guns, Jessica said. The dust-reddened first moon of Arrakis lifted above the horizon to their left, and they saw a storm trail there, a ribbon of movement over the desert. It must be Harkon and Thopters hunting us, Paul said, the way they're cutting up the desert. It's as though they were making certain they stamped out whatever's there, the way you'd stamp out a nest of insects. Or a nest of Atreides, Jessica said. We must seek cover, Paul said. We'll head south and keep to the rocks, if they caught us in the open. He turned, adjusting the pack to his shoulders. They're killing anything that moves. He took one step along the ledge and, in that instant, heard the low hiss of gliding aircraft, saw the dark shapes of ornithopters above them. My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis for all morality. Something cannot emerge from nothing, he said. This is profound thinking if you understand how unstable the truth can be. From Conversations with Muad'Dib by the Princess Iralon. I've always prided myself on seeing things the way they truly are. That's the curse of being a mentat. You can't stop analyzing your data. The leathered old face of Thufir Hawat appeared composed in the pre-dawn dimness as he spoke. His sapphire-stained lips were drawn into a straight line, with radial creases spreading upward. A robed man squatted silently on sand across from Hawat, apparently unmoved by the words. The two crouched beneath a rock overhang that looked down on a wide, shallow sink. Dawn was spreading over the shattered outline of cliffs across the basin, touching everything with pink. It was cold under the overhang, a dry and penetrating chill left over from the night. There had been a warm wind just before dawn, but now it was cold. Howard could hear teeth chattering behind him among the few troopers remaining in his force. The man squatting across from Howard was a Fremen who had come across the sink in the first light of false dawn, skittering over the sand, blending into the dunes, his movements barely discernible. The Fremen extended a finger to the sand between them, drew a figure there. It looked like a bowl, with an arrow spilling out of it. There are many Harkonnen patrols. He lifted his finger, pointed upward across the cliffs that Howat and his men had descended. Howat nodded. Many patrols, yes. 
but still he did not know what this Fremen wanted, and this rankled. Mentat training was supposed to give a man the power to see motives. This had been the worst night of Howard's life. He had been at Simpo, a garrison village, buffer outpost for the former capital city Carthag, when the reports of attack began arriving. At first, he thought, it's a raid. The Harkonnens are testing. But report followed report, faster and faster. Two legions landed at Carthag, five legions, fifty brigades, attacking the Duke's main base at Arakin. A legion at Arsunt. Two battle groups at Splintered Rock. Then the reports became more detailed. There were Imperial Sardaka among the attackers, possibly two legions of them. And it became clear that the invaders knew precisely which weight of arms to send where. Precisely. Superb intelligence. Howard's shocked fury had mounted until it threatened the smooth functioning of his mentat capabilities. The size of the attack struck his mind like a physical blow. Now, hiding beneath a bit of desert rock, he nodded to himself, pulled his torn and slashed tunic around him as though warding off the cold shadows. The size of the attack. He had always expected their enemy to hire an occasional lighter from the guild for probing raids. That was an ordinary enough gambit in this kind of house-to-house -house warfare. Lighters landed and took off on Arrakis regularly to transport the spice for House Atreides. Howat had taken precautions against random raids by false spice lighters. For a full attack, they'd expected no more than ten brigades. But there were more than two thousand ships down on Arrakis at the last count. Not just lighters, but frigates, scouts, monitors, crushers, troop carriers, dump boxes. More than a hundred brigades, ten legions. The entire spice income of Arrakis for fifty years might just cover the cost of such a venture. It might. I underestimated what the Baron was willing to spend in attacking us, Howard thought. I failed, my duke. Then there was the matter of the traitor. I will live long enough to see her strangled, he thought. I should have killed that Bene Gesserit witch when I had the chance. There was no doubt in his mind who had betrayed them, the Lady Jessica. She fitted all the facts available. Your man Gurney Halleck and part of his force are safe with our smuggler friends. Good. So Gurney will get off this hell planet. We're not all gone. Howard glanced back at the huddle of his men. They had started the night just past with three hundred of his finest. Of those, an even twenty remained, and half of them were wounded. Some of them slept now, standing up, leaning against the rock, sprawled on the sand beneath the rock. Their last thopter, the one they'd been using as a ground-effect machine to carry their wounded, had given out just before dawn. They had cut it up with laser guns and hidden the pieces, then worked their way down into this hiding place at the edge of the basin. Howard had only a rough idea of their location, some two hundred kilometers southeast of Arakin. The main travelled ways between the Shield Wall CH communities were somewhere south of them. The Fremen across from Howard threw back his hood and stillsuit cap to reveal sandy hair and beard. The hair was combed straight back from a high, thin forehead. He had the unreadable total blue eyes of the spice diet. 
Beard and moustache were stained at one side of the mouth, his hair matted there by pressure of the looping catch-tube from his nose-plugs. The man removed his plugs, readjusted them. He rubbed at a scar beside his nose. If you cross the sink here this night, you must not use shields. There is a break in the wall. He turned on his heels, pointed south. There, and it is open sand down to the erg. Shields will attract it. Worm, they don't often come in here, but a shield will bring one every time. He said worm, Howard thought. He was going to say something else. What? And what does he want of us? Howard sighed. He could not recall ever before being this tired. It was a muscle weariness that energy pills were unable to ease. Those damnable Sardaka! With a self-accusing bitterness, he faced the thought of the soldier fanatics and the imperial treachery they represented. His own mentat assessment of the data told him how little chance he had ever to present evidence of this treachery before the High Council of the Landsrat, where justice might be done. Do you wish to go to the smugglers? Is it possible? The way is long. Fremen don't like to say no, Idaho had told him once. You haven't yet told me whether your people can help my wounded. They are wounded? The same damned answer every time. We know they're wounded. That's not the peace, friend. What do your wounded say? Are there those among them who can see the water need of your tribe? We haven't talked about water. We... I can understand your reluctance. They are your friends, your tribesmen. Do you have water? Not enough. The Fremen gestured to Howard's tunic, the skin exposed beneath it. You were caught in CH without your suits. You must make a water decision, friend. Can we hire your help? The Fremen shrugged. You have no water. He glanced at the group behind Howard. How many of your wounded would you spend? Howard fell silent, staring at the man. He could see as a mentat that their communication was out of phase. Word sounds were not being linked up here in the normal manner. I am Thufir Howard. I can speak for my duke. I will make promissory commitment now for your help. I wish a limited form of help, preserving my force long enough only to kill a traitor who thinks herself beyond vengeance. You wish our siding in a vendetta? The vendetta I'll handle myself. I wish to be freed of responsibility for my wounded that I may get about it. The Fremen scowled. How can you be responsible for your wounded? They are their own responsibility. The water's at issue, Thufir Howard. Would you have me take that decision away from you? The man put a hand to a weapon concealed beneath his robe. Howard tensed, wondering, is there betrayal here? What do you fear? These people and their disconcerting directness. Howard spoke cautiously. There's a price on my head. Ah. The Fremen removed his hand from his weapon. You think we have the Byzantine corruption? You don't know us. The Harkonnens have not water enough to buy the smallest child among us. 
But they had the price of guild passage for more than 2,000 fighting ships, Howard thought. And the size of that price still staggered him. We both fight Harkonnens. Should we not share the problems and ways of meeting the battle issue? We are sharing. I have seen you fight Harkonnens. You are good. There have been times I'd have appreciated your arm beside me. Say where my arm may help you. Who knows? There are Harkonnen forces everywhere. But you still have not made the water decision or put it to your wounded. I must be cautious, Howard told himself. There's a thing here that's not understood. Will you show me your way? The Arakeen way? Stranger thinking. There was a sneer in the Fremen's tone. He pointed to the northwest, across the clifftop. We watched you come across the sand last night. You keep your force on the slip face of the dunes. Bad. You have no still suits, no water. You will not last long. The ways of Arrakis don't come easily. Truth. But we've killed Harkonnens. What do you do with your own wounded? Does a man not know when he is worth saving? Your wounded know you have no water. He tilted his head, looking sideways up at Howard. This is clearly a time for water decision. Both wounded and unwounded must look to the tribe's future. The tribe's future, Howard thought. The tribe of Atreides. There's sense in that. He forced himself to the question he had been avoiding. Have you word of my duke or his son? Unreadable blue eyes stared upward into Howard's. Word? Their fate! Fate is the same for everyone. Your duke, it is said, has met his fate. As to the Lizan al-Gaib, his son, that is in Liet's hands. Liet has not said. I knew the answer without asking, Howard thought. He glanced back at his men. They were all awake now. They had heard. They were staring out across the sand. The realization in their expressions, there was no returning to Caladan for them. And now, Arrakis was lost. Howard turned back to the Fremen. Have you heard of Duncan Idaho? He was in the great house when the shield went down. This I've heard. No more. She dropped the shield and let in the Harkonnens, he thought. I was the one who sat with my back to a door. How could she do this when it meant turning also against her own son? But who knows how a Bene Gesserit witch thinks, if you can call it thinking. Howard tried to swallow in a dry throat. When will you hear about the boy? We know little of what happens in Erekin. Who knows? You have ways of finding out? Perhaps. The Fremen rubbed at the scar beside his nose. Tell me, Thufir Howard, do you have knowledge of the big weapons the Harkonnens used? The artillery, Howard thought bitterly. Who could have guessed they'd use artillery in this day of shields? You refer to the artillery they used to trap our people in the caves. I've theoretical knowledge of such explosive weapons. Any man who retreats into a cave which has only one opening deserves to die. 
Why do you ask about these weapons? Liet wishes it. Is that what he wants from us? Howard wondered. Did you come here seeking information about the big guns? Liet wished to see one of the weapons for himself. Then you should just go take one. Yes, we took one. We have it hidden where Stilgar can study it for Liet and where Liet can see it for himself if he wishes. But I doubt he'll want to. The weapon is not a very good one. Poor design for Arrakis. You took one. It was a good fight. We lost only two men and spilled the water from more than a hundred of theirs. There was Sardaka at every gun, Howard thought. This desert madman speaks casually of losing only two men against Sardaka. We would not have lost the two except for those others fighting beside the Harkonnens. Some of those are good fighters. One of Howard's men limped forward, looking down at the squatting Fremen. Are you talking about Sardaka? He's talking about Sardaukar. Sardaukar? Ah, so that's what they are. This was a good night indeed. Sardaukar. Which legion do you know? We don't know. Sardaukar. Yet they wear Harkonnen clothing. Is that not strange? The Emperor does not wish it known he fights against a great house. But you know they are Sardaukar. Who am I? You are Thufir Howard. Well, we would have learned it in time. We've sent three of them captive to be questioned by Liet's men. You captured Sardaka? Only three of them. They fought well. If only we'd had the time to link up with these Fremen, Howard thought. It was a sour lament in his mind. If only we could have trained them and armed them. Great Mother, what a fighting force we'd have had. Perhaps you delay because of worry over the Lizan al-Gaib. If he is truly the Lizan al-Gaib, harm cannot touch him. Do not spend thoughts on a matter which has not been proved. I served the Lizan al-Gaib. His welfare is my concern. I've pledged myself to this. You are pledged to his water? Howard glanced at his aide, who was still staring at the Fremen, returned his attention to the squatting figure. To his water, yes. You wish to return to Erekin, to the place of his water? To, yes, to the place of his water. Why did you not say at first it was a water matter? The Fremen stood up, seated his nose plugs firmly. Howard motioned with his head for his aide to return to the others. With a tired shrug, the man obeyed. Howard heard a low-voiced conversation arise among the men. There is always a way to water. Behind Howard, a man cursed. Howard's aide called him. Thufir! Arki just died. The Fremen put a fist to his ear. The bond of water. It's a sign. He stared at Howard. We have a place nearby for accepting the water. Shall I call my men? The aide returned to Howard's side. Thufir... A couple of the men left wives in Arakeen. They're... well, you know how it is at a time like this. The Fremen still held his fist to his ear. Is it the bond of water, Thufir Howat? Howat's mind was racing. He sensed now the direction of the Fremen's words, 
but feared the reaction of the tired men under the rock overhang when they understood it. The bond of water. Let our tribes be joined. The Fremen lowered his fist. As though that were the signal, four men slid and dropped down from the rocks above them. They darted back under the overhang, rolled the dead man in a loose robe, lifted him, and began running with him along the cliff wall to the right. Spurts of dust lifted around their running feet. It was over before Howard's tired men could gather their wits. The group, with the body hanging like a sack in its enfolding robe, was gone around a turn in the cliff. Where are they going with Arky? He was... They're taking him to bury him. Fremen don't bury their dead! Don't you try any tricks on us, Thufir. We know what they do. Aki was one of... Paradise was sure for a man who died in the service of Lizan al-Gaib. If it is the Lizan al-Gaib you serve, as you have said it, why raise mourning cries? The memory of one who died in this fashion will live as long as the memory of man endures. But Howard's men advanced, angry looks on their faces. One had captured a laser gun. He started to draw it. Stop right where you are! Howard fought down the sick fatigue that gripped his muscles. These people respect our dead. Customs differ, but the meaning's the same. They're going to render Arky down for his water! Is it that your men wish to attend the ceremony? He doesn't even see the problem, Howard thought. The naivety of the Fremen was frightening. They're concerned for a respected comrade. We will treat your comrade with the same reverence we treat our own. This is the bond of water. We know the rights. A man's flesh is his own. The water belongs to the tribe. Howard spoke quickly as the man with the laser gun advanced another step. Will you now help our wounded? One does not question the bond. We will do for you what a tribe does for its own. First, we must get all of you suited and see to the necessities. The man with the laser gun hesitated. Howard's aide spoke. Are we buying help with Arky's water? Not buying. We've joined these people. Customs differ. Howard began to relax. And they'll help us get to Atakeen? We will kill Harkonnens and Sardaukar. The Fremen grinned. He stepped backward, cupped his hands beside his ears and tipped his head back, listening. Presently, he lowered his hands. An aircraft comes. Conceal yourselves beneath the rock and remain motionless. At a gesture from Howard, his men obeyed. The Fremen took Howard's arm, pressed him back with the others. We will fight in the time of fighting. He reached beneath his robes, brought out a small cage, lifted a creature from it. Howard recognized a tiny bat. The bat turned its head and Howard saw its blue-within-blue blue eyes. The Fremen stroked the bat, soothing it, crooning to it. He bent over the animal's head, allowed a drop of saliva to fall from his tongue into the bat's upturned mouth. The bat stretched its wings but remained on the Fremen's opened hand. The man took a tiny tube, held it beside the bat's head and chattered into the tube. Then, lifting the creature high, he threw it upward. The bat swooped away beside the cliff and was lost to sight. The Fremen folded the cage, thrust it beneath his robe. Again he bent his head, listening.
they quarter the high country. One wonders who they seek up there. It's known that we retreated in this direction. One should never presume one is the sole object of a hunt. Watch the other side of the basin. You will see a thing. Time passed. Some of Howard's men stirred, whispering. Remain silent as frightened animals, the Fremen hissed. Howard discerned movement near the opposite cliff, flitting blurs of tan on tan. My little friend carried his message, the Fremen said. He is a good messenger, day or night. I'll be unhappy to lose that one. The movement across the sink faded away. On the entire four to five kilometer expanse of sand, nothing remained but the growing pressure of the day's heat-blurred columns of rising air. Be most silent now, the Fremen whispered. A file of plodding figures emerged from a break in the opposite cliff, headed directly across the sink. To Howart they appeared to be Fremen, but a curiously inept band. He counted six men making heavy going of it over the dunes. A thwock-thwock of ornithopter wings sounded high to the right behind Howard's group. The craft came over the cliff wall above them. An Atreides thopter with Harkonnen battle colors splashed on it. The thopter swooped toward the men crossing the sink. The group there stopped on a dune crest, waved. The thopter circled once over them in a tight curve, came back for a dust-shrouded landing in front of the Fremen. Five men swarmed from the thopter, and Howard saw the dust-repellent shimmering of shields, and in their motions the hard competence of Sardaka. Aye, they use their stupid shields, the Fremen beside Howard hissed. He glanced toward the open south wall of the sink. They are Sardaka, Howard whispered. Good. The Sardaka approached the waiting group of Fremen in an enclosing half-circle. Sun glinted on blades held ready. The Fremen stood in a compact group, apparently indifferent. Abruptly, the sand around the two groups sprouted Fremen. They were at the ornithopter, then in it. Where the two groups had met at the dune crest, a dust cloud partly obscured violent motion. Presently, dust settled. Only Fremen remained standing. They left only three men in their thopter, the Fremen beside Howard said. That was fortunate. I don't believe we had to damage the craft in taking it. Behind Howard, one of his men whispered, Those were Sardaka. Did you notice how well they fought? The Fremen asked. Howard took a deep breath. He smelled the burned dust around him, felt the heat, the dryness. In a voice to match that dryness, he said, Yes, they fought well indeed. The captured Thopter took off with a lurching flap of wings, angled upward to the south in a steep, wing-tucked climb. So these Fremen can handle Thopters too, Howard thought. On the distant dune, a Fremen waved a square of green cloth, once, twice. More come, the Fremen beside Howard barked. Be ready! I'd hoped to have us away without more inconvenience. Inconvenience, Howard thought. He saw two more thopters swooping from high in the west onto an area of sand suddenly devoid of visible Fremen. Only eight splotches of blue, the bodies of the Sardaka in Harkonnen uniforms, remained at the scene of violence. Another thopter glided in over the cliff wall above Howard. He drew in a sharp breath as he saw it, a big troop carrier. 
It flew with the slow spread wing heaviness of a full load, like a giant bird coming to its nest. In the distance, the purple finger of a laser gun beam flicked from one of the diving thopters. It laced across the sand, raising a sharp trail of dust. The cowards! The Fremen beside Howard rasped. The troop carrier settled toward the patch of blue-clad bodies. Its wings crept out to full reach, began the cupping action of a quick stop. Howard's attention was caught by a flash of sun on metal to the south. A thopter plummeting there in a power dive, wings folded flat against its sides, its jets a golden flare against the dark silvered grey of the sky. It plunged like an arrow toward the troop carrier which was unshielded because of the laser gun activity around it. Straight into the carrier the diving thopter plunged. A flaming roar shook the basin. Rocks tumbled from the cliff walls all around. A geyser of red-orange shot skyward from the sand where the carrier and its companion thopters had been. Everything there caught in the flame. It was the Fremen who took off in that captured thopter, Howard thought. He deliberately sacrificed himself to get that carrier. Great mother, what are these Fremen? A reasonable exchange, said the Fremen beside Howard. There must have been 300 men in that carrier. Now... We must see to their water and make plans to get another aircraft. He started to step out of their rock-shadowed concealment. A rain of blue uniforms came over the cliff wall in front of him, falling in low suspensor slowness. In the flashing instant, Howard had time to see that they were Sadoka, hard faces set in battle frenzy, that they were unshielded and each carried a knife in one hand, a stunner in the other. A thrown knife caught Howard's Fremen companion in the throat, hurling him backward, twisting face down. Howard had only time to draw his own knife before blackness of a stunner projectile felled him. Muad'Dib could indeed see the future, but you must understand the limits of this power. Think of sight. You have eyes, yet cannot see without light. If you are on the floor of a valley, you cannot see beyond your valley. Just so, Muad'Dib could not always choose to look across the mysterious terrain. He tells us that a single obscure decision of prophecy, perhaps the choice of one word over another, could change the entire aspect of the future. He tells us, the vision of time is broad, but when you pass through it, time becomes a narrow door. And always, he fought the temptation to choose a clear, safe course, warning, that path leads ever down into stagnation. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. As the ornithopters glided out of the night above them, Paul grabbed his mother's arm, snapped. Don't move! Then he saw the lead craft in the moonlight, the way its wings cupped to break for landing the reckless dash of the hands at the controls. It's Idaho, he breathed. The craft and its companions settled into the basin like a covey of birds coming to nest. Idaho was out of his thopter and running toward them before the dust settled. Two figures in Fremen robes followed him. Paul recognized one, the tall, sandy-bearded Kynes. This way, Kynes called, and he veered left. Behind Kynes, other Fremen were throwing fabric covers over their ornithopters. The craft became a row of shallow dunes. Idaho skidded to a stop in front of Paul, saluted. My lord, the Fremen have a temporary hiding place nearby where we... 
What about that, back there? Paul pointed to the violence above the distant cliff, the jet flares, the purple beams of laser guns lacing the desert. A rare smile touched Idaho's round, placid face. Me lord, sire, I've left them a little sub- Glaring white light filled the desert, bright as a sun etching their shadows onto the rock floor of the ledge. In one sweeping motion, Idaho had Paul's arm in one hand, Jessica's shoulder in the other, hurling them down off the ledge into the basin. They sprawled together in the sand as the roar of an explosion thundered over them. Its shock wave tumbled chips off the rock ledge they had vacated. Idaho sat up, brushed sand from himself. Not the family atomics, Jessica said. I thought... You planted a shield back there, Paul said. A big one. Turned to full force, Idaho said. A lesgun beam touched it and... He shrugged. Subatomic fusion, Jessica said. That's a dangerous weapon. Not weapon, milady. Defense. That scum will think twice before using laser guns another time. The Fremen from the ornithopters stopped above them. One called in a low voice, We should get under cover, friends. Paul got to his feet as Idaho helped Jessica up. That blast will attract considerable attention, sire, Idaho said. Sire, Paul thought. The word had such a strange sound when directed at him. Sire had always been his father. He felt himself touched briefly by his powers of prescience, seeing himself infected by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe toward chaos. The vision left him shaken, and he allowed Idaho to guide him along the edge of the basin to a rock projection. Fremen there were opening a way down into the sand with their compaction tools. "'May I take your pack, sir?' Idaho asked. "'It's not heavy, Duncan,' Paul said. "'You have no body shield.' Idaho said, do you wish mine? He glanced at the distant cliff. Not likely there'll be any more laser gun activity about. Keep your shield, Duncan. Your right arm is shield enough for me. Jessica saw the way the praise took effect. How Idaho moved closer to Paul, and she thought, such a sure hand my son has with his people. The Fremen removed a rock plug that opened a passage down into the native basement complex of the desert. A camouflage cover was rigged for the opening. This way, one of the Fremen said, and he led them down rock steps into darkness. Behind them, the cover blotted out the moonlight. A dim green glow came alive ahead, revealing the steps and rock walls, a turn to the left. Robed Fremen were all around them now, pressing downward. They rounded the corner, found another down-slanting passage. It opened into a rough cave chamber. Kynes stood before them, Jabba Hood thrown back, the neck of his stillsuit glistening in the green light. His long hair and beard were must, the blue eyes without whites were a darkness under heavy brows. In the moment of encounter, Kynes wondered at himself, Why am I helping these people? It's the most dangerous thing I've ever done. It could doom me with them. Then he looked squarely at Paul, seeing the boy who had taken on the mantle of manhood, masking grief, suppressing all except the position that now must be assumed, the dukedom. 
and Kynes realized in that moment the dukedom still existed, and solely because of this youth. And this was not a thing to be taken lightly. Jessica glanced once around the chamber, registering it on her senses in the Bene Gesserit way, a laboratory, a civil place full of angles and squares in the ancient manner. This is one of the imperial ecological testing stations my father wanted as advance bases, Paul said. His father wanted, Kynes thought, and again Kynes wondered at himself, am I foolish to aid these fugitives? Why am I doing it? It would be so easy to take them now, to buy the Harkonnen Trust with them. Paul followed his mother's example, gestalting the room, seeing the workbench down one side, the walls of featureless rock. Instruments lined the bench, dials glowing, wire gridex planes with fluting glass emerging from them, an ozone smell permeated the place. Some of the Fremen moved on around a concealing angle in the chamber, and new sounds started there, machine coughs, the whinnies of spinning belts and multi-drives. Paul looked to the end of the room, saw cages with small animals in them stacked against the wall. "'You've recognized this place correctly,' Kynes said. "'For what would you use such a place, Paul Atreides?' "'To make this planet a fit place for humans,' Paul said. Perhaps that's why I help them, Kynes thought. The machine sounds abruptly hummed away to silence. Into this void there came a thin animal squeak from the cages. It was cut off abruptly as though in embarrassment. Paul returned his attention to the cages, saw that the animals were brown-winged bats. An automatic feeder extended from the side wall across the cages. A Fremen emerged from the hidden area of the chamber, spoke to Kynes. Liet, the field generator equipment is not working. I am unable to mask us from proximity detectors. Can you repair it? Kynes asked. Not quickly. The parts, the man shrugged. Yes, Kynes said. Then we'll do without machinery. Get a hand pump for air out to the surface. Immediately, the man hurried away. Kynes turned back to Paul. You gave a good answer. Jessica marked the easy rumble of the man's voice. It was a royal voice accustomed to command, and she had not missed the reference to him as Liet. Liet was the Fremen alter ego, the other face of the tame planetologist. We are most grateful for your help, Dr. Kynes, she said. Mm-hmm. We'll see, Kynes said. He nodded to one of his men. Spice coffee in my quarters, Shamir? At once, Liet, the man said. Kynes indicated an arched opening in the side wall of the chamber. If you please. Jessica allowed herself a regal nod before accepting. She saw Paul give a hand signal to Idaho, telling him to mount guard here. The passage, two paces deep, opened through a heavy door into a square office lighted by golden glow-globes. Jessica passed her hand across the door as she entered, was startled to identify Plasteel. Paul stepped three paces into the room, dropped his pack to the floor. He heard the door close behind him, studied the place. About eight meters to a side, walls of natural rock, curry-colored, broken by metal filing cabinets on their right, 
A low desk with milk glass top shot full of yellow bubbles occupied the room's centre. Four suspenser chairs ringed the desk. Kynes moved around Paul, held a chair for Jessica. She sat down, noting the way her son examined the room. Paul remained standing for another eye-blink. A faint anomaly in the room's air currents told him there was a secret exit to their right, behind the filing cabinets. "'Will you sit down, Paul Atreides?' Kynes asked. "'How carefully he avoids my title,' Paul thought. But he accepted the chair, remained silent while Kynes sat down. "'You sense that Arrakis could be a paradise,' Kynes said. "'Yet as you see, the Imperium sends here only its trained hatchet-men, its seekers after the spice.' Paul held up his thumb with its ducal signet. Do you see this ring? Yes. Do you know its significance? Jessica turned sharply to stare at her son. Your father lies dead in the ruins of Arakeen, Kynes said. You are technically the Duke. I'm a soldier of the Imperium, Paul said. Technically a hatchet man. Kynes' face darkened. Even with the Emperor's Sarduka standing over your father's body? The Sarduka are one thing. The legal source of my authority is another, Paul said. Arrakis has its own way of determining who wears the mantle of authority, Kynes said. And Jessica, turning back to look at him, thought, There's steel in this man that no one has taken the temper out of. And we've need of steel. Paul's doing a dangerous thing. Paul said, The Sardaukar on Arrakis are a measure of how much our beloved emperor feared my father. Now I will give the Padishah emperor reasons to fear the— Lad, Kynes said, There are things you don't— You will address me as sire or my lord, Paul said. Gently, Jessica thought. Kynes stared at Paul, and Jessica noted the glint of admiration in the planetologist's face, the touch of humour there. "'Sire,' Kynes said. "'I am an embarrassment to the Emperor,' Paul said. "'I am an embarrassment to all who would divide Arrakis as their spoil. "'As I live, I shall continue to be such an embarrassment "'that I stick in their throats and choke them to death.' "'Words,' Kynes said. "'Paul stared at him. "'Presently, Paul said, "'You have a legend of the Lisan al-Gaib here, "'the voice from the outer world.' the one who will lead the Fremen to paradise. Your men have superstition, Kynes said. Perhaps, Paul agreed, yet perhaps not. Superstitions sometimes have strange roots and stranger branchings. You have a plan, Kynes said. This much is obvious, sire. Could your Fremen provide me with proof positive that the Sardukar are here in Harkonnen uniform? Quite likely. The Emperor will put a Harkonnen back in power here, Paul said. Perhaps even Beast Raban. Let him. Once he has involved himself beyond escaping his guilt, let the Emperor face the possibility of a bill of particulars laid before the Lancerot. Let him answer there where... Paul, Jessica said. Granted that the Lancerot High Council accepts your case, Kynes said, there could be only one outcome. The general warfare between the Imperium and the Great Houses. Chaos, Jessica said. But I'd present my case to the Emperor, 
Paul said, and give him an alternative to chaos. Jessica spoke in a dry tone. Blackmail? One of the tools of statecraft, as you've said yourself, Paul said, and Jessica heard the bitterness in his voice. The Emperor has no sons, only daughters. You'd aim for the throne? Jessica asked. The Emperor will not risk having the Imperium shattered by total war, Paul said. Planets blasted, disorder everywhere, he'll not risk that. This is a desperate gamble, you propose, Kynes said. What do the great houses of the Lanthrot fear most? Paul asked. They fear most what is happening here right now on Arrakis, the Sardaukar picking them off one by one. That's why there is a Lanthrot. This is the glue of the Great Convention. Only in union do they match the Imperial forces. But there— This is what they fear, Paul said. Arrakis would become a rallying cry. Each of them would see himself in my father, cut out of the herd and killed. Kynes spoke to Jessica. Would his plan work? I'm no Mentat, Jessica said. But you are Bene Gesserit. She shot a probing stare at him, said, His plan has good points and bad points, as any plan would at this stage. A plan depends as much upon execution as it does upon concept. Law is the ultimate science, Paul quoted. Thus it reads above the Emperor's door. I propose to show him law. And I'm not sure I could trust the person who conceived this plan, Kynes said. Arrakis has its own plan that we— From the throne, Paul said. I could make a paradise of Arrakis with the wave of a hand. This is the coin I offer for your support. Kynes stiffened. My loyalty's not for sale, sire. Paul stared across the desk at him, meeting the cold glare of those blue-within-blue eyes, studying the bearded face, the commanding appearance. A harsh smile touched Paul's lips, and he said, Well spoken. I apologize. Kynes met Paul's stare and presently said, No Harkonnen ever admitted error. Perhaps you're not like them, Atreides. It could be a fault in their education, Paul said. You say you're not for sale, but I believe I've the coin you'll accept. For your loyalty, I offer my loyalty to you. Totally. My son has the Atreides' sincerity, Jessica thought. He has that tremendous, almost naive honour. And what a powerful force that truly is. She saw that Paul's words had shaken Kynes. This is nonsense, Kynes said. You're just a boy, and— I'm the Duke, Paul said. I'm an Atreides. No Atreides has ever broken such a bond. Kynes swallowed. When I say totally, Paul said, I mean without reservation. I would give my life for you. Sire, Kynes said, and the word was torn from him. But Jessica saw that he was not now speaking to a boy of fifteen, but to a man, to a superior. Now Kynes meant the word. In this moment he'd give his life for Paul, she thought. How do the Atreides accomplish this thing so quickly, so easily? I know you mean this, Kynes said. Yet the Harkon— The door behind Paul slammed open. 
He whirled to see reeling violence shouting, the clash of steel, wax-image faces grimacing in the passage. With his mother beside him, Paul leaped for the door, seeing Idaho blocking the passage, his blood-pitted eyes there visible through a shield blur, claw hands beyond him, arcs of steel chopping futilely at the shield. There was the orange firemouth of a stunner repelled by the shield. Idaho's blades were through it all, flick-flicking, red dripping from them. Then Kynes was beside Paul, and they threw their weight against the door. Paul had one last glimpse of Idaho standing against a swarm of Harkonnen uniforms, his jerking, controlled staggers, the black goat hair with a red blossom of death in it. Then the door was closed, and there came a snick as Kynes threw the bolts. "'I appear to have decided,' Kynes said. "'Someone detected your machinery before it was shut down,' Paul said. He pulled his mother away from the door, met the despair in her eyes. "'I should have suspected trouble when the coffee failed to arrive,' Kynes said. "'You've a bolt hole out of here,' Paul said. "'Shall we use it?' Kynes took a deep breath, said. "'This door should hold for at least twenty minutes, against all but a laze gun.' "'They'll not use a laze gun for fear we've shields on this side,' Paul said. "'Those were Sardaukar in Harkonnen uniform,' Jessica whispered. "'They could hear pounding on the door now, rhythmic blows. "'Kynes indicated the cabinets against the right-hand wall, said, "'This way!' "'He crossed to the first cabinet, opened a drawer, manipulated a handle within it. "'The entire wall of cabinets swung open to expose the black mouth of a tunnel.' This door also is plastile, Kynes said. You were well prepared, Jessica said. We lived under the Harkonnens for eighty years, Kynes said. He herded them into the darkness, closed the door. In the sudden blackness, Jessica saw a luminous arrow on the floor ahead of her. Kynes' voice came from behind them. We'll separate here. This wall is tougher. It'll stand for at least an hour. "'Follow the arrows like that one on the floor. "'They'll be extinguished by your passage. "'They lead through a maze to another exit "'where I've secreted a thopter. "'There's a storm across the desert tonight. "'Your only hope is to run for that storm, "'dive into the top of it, ride with it. "'My people have done this in stealing thopters. "'If you stay high in the storm, you'll survive.' "'What of you?' Paul asked. "'I'll try to escape another way. "'If I'm captured, well,' I'm still Imperial Planetologist. I can say I was your captive. Running like cowards, Paul thought. But how else can I live to avenge my father? He turned to face the door. Jessica heard him move, said, Duncan's dead, Paul. You saw the wound. You can do nothing for him. I'll take full payment for them all one day, Paul said. Not unless you hurry now, Kynes said. Paul felt the man's hand on his shoulder. "'Where will we meet, Kynes?' Paul asked. "'I'll send Fremen searching for you. The storm's path is known. Hurry now, and the Great Mother give you speed and luck.' They heard him go, a scrambling in the blackness. Jessica found Paul's hand, pulled him gently. "'We must not get separated,' she said. "'Yes.' He followed her across the first arrow, seeing it go black as they touched it. Another arrow beckoned ahead. They crossed it, saw it extinguish itself, saw another arrow ahead. They were running now. Plans within plans? 
Within plans, within plans, Jessica thought. Have we become part of someone else's plan now? The arrows led them around turnings, past side openings only dimly sensed in the faint luminescence. Their way slanted downward for a time, then up, ever up. They came finally to steps, rounded a corner and were brought short by a glowing wall with a dark handle visible in its centre. Paul pressed the handle. The wall swung away from them. Light flared to reveal a rock-hewn cavern with an ornithopter squatting in its centre. A flat grey wall with a door sign on it loomed beyond the aircraft. Where did Kynes go? Jessica asked. He did what any good guerrilla leader would, Paul said. He separated us into two parties and arranged that he couldn't reveal where we are if he's captured. He won't really know. Paul drew her into the room, noting how their feet kicked up dust on the floor. No one's been here for a long time, he said. He seemed confident the Fremen could find us, she said. I share that confidence. Paul released her hand, crossed to the ornithopter's left door, opened it and secured his pack in the rear. This ship's proximity masked, he said. Instrument panel has remote door control, light control. Eighty years under the Harkonnens taught them to be thorough. Jessica leaned against the craft's other side, catching her breath. The Harkonnens will have a covering force over this area, she said. They're not stupid. She considered her direction sense, pointed right. The storm we saw is that way. Paul nodded, fighting an abrupt reluctance to move. He knew its cause, but found no help in the knowledge. Somewhere this night he had passed a decision nexus into the deep unknown. He knew the time area surrounding them, but the here and now existed as a place of mystery. It was as though he had seen himself from a distance go out of sight down into a valley. Of the countless paths up out of that valley, some might carry a Paul Atreides back into sight, but many would not. The longer we wait, the better prepared they'll be. Jessica said. Get in and strap yourself down, he said. He joined her in the ornithopter, still wrestling with the thought that this was blind ground, unseen in any prescient vision. And he realized with an abrupt sense of shock that he had been giving more and more reliance to prescient memory, and it had weakened him for this particular emergency. If you rely only on your eyes, your other senses weaken. It was a Bene Gesserit axiom. He took it to himself now, promising never again to fall into that trap, if he lived through this. Paul fastened his safety harness, saw that his mother was secure, checked the aircraft. The wings were at full spread rest, their delicate metal interleavings extended. He touched the retractor bar, watched the wings shorten for jet boost takeoff, the way Gurney Halleck had taught him. The starter switch moved easily. Dials on the instrument panel came alive as the jet pods were armed. Turbines began their low hissing. Ready? he asked. Yes. He touched the remote control for lights. Darkness blanketed them. His hand was a shadow against the luminous dials as he tripped the remote door control. Grating sounded ahead of them. A cascade of sand swished away to silence. A dusty breeze touched Paul's cheeks. He closed his door, feeling the sudden pressure. A wide patch of dust-blurred stars framed in angular darkness appeared where the door wall had been. 
Starlight defined a shelf beyond, a suggestion of sand ripples. Paul depressed the glowing action sequence switch on his panel. The wings snapped back and down, hurling the thopter out of its nest. Power surged from the jet pods as the wings locked into lift attitude. Jessica let her hands ride lightly on the dual controls, feeling the sureness of her son's movements. She was frightened, yet exhilarated. Now, Paul's training is our only hope, she thought. His youth and swiftness. Paul fed more power to the jet pods. The thopter banked, sinking them into their seats as a dark wall lifted against the stars ahead. He gave the craft more wing, more power. Another burst of lifting wing beats, and they came out over rocks, silver-frosted angles and outcroppings in the starlight. The dust-reddened second moon showed itself above the horizon to their right, defining the ribbon trail of the storm. 